But yes, I really get thrown back into it now that I'm back. As Matt said, he's out of town, so I get the opportunity, the great honor to help us dive into God's word together. Um, I've just gotten off my paternity leave, um, so I just want to thank you as uh, an employee of this church um, that we honor families and kids so much. It's pretty rare um, that mothers get maternity leave and certainly even less frequent that fathers get any paternity leave, so I want to thank you so much for that. It's been truly a blessing to our family as we welcome um, our second daughter, Sophie. I know as excited as you are to see me, I know what you really want to see is is them, so I'll put up a picture. We had some photos taken, Um, so this is just a preview that we got. Um, We're just over the moon excited, Um, and it's truly been a joy to spend these past couple weeks um, just getting acquainted. Uh, It's it's just been beautiful to see the way Lucy has just jumped into being a big sister. Like, sometimes we have to say, okay, that's enough love, that's enough kisses. We give her a minute, let her breathe, Um, but it's just been a a true joy. So I want to thank you for that. truly means a lot. Um, But while while I've been out, um, I've gotten the opportunity to spend a lot more time with Lucy and, and playing games. And um, she's recently gotten into a new show. If you have kids, you're familiar with Peppa Pig. And uh, Peppa Pig is all about a little pig named Peppa, her her brother George, and then Mommy Pig and Daddy Pig and the adventures that they get into. Uh, But it's a British show. And Lucy, if she watches it enough, which is probably a good indicator that she's probably watching it too much, right, that she'll start to get a little bit of a British accent, believe it or not. And one, one day we were playing. She's been really into building tents, and so we built like a blanket fort. And we were in there, and I got an email come through about an appointment that Sophie had coming up. And she sees me looking at my phone, and with this little British accent, she goes, Dad, you're not playing properly. And I was like, first off, who are you? (laughs) Second off, where did you learn the word properly? Because that's funny for a three-year-old to say, let me tell you. And then it came to me in the back recesses of my mind when I wasn't paying attention that, yes, it's from Peppa Pig. Uh, But it it was just so funny and such an interesting reminder that even a three-year-old can understand the mechanics of this game that she made up. We were playing monsters. Our, our dog, Max, was the monster. And we had to, once we saw Max, we go run and hide in the tent, and we're protected. And then Max chases after us and tries to burrow his way in, right? And me, in checking this email, was not playing properly. And so it's interesting to see that this three-year-old and this game that she made up has very strict ideas of what is proper and what is improper, what is right and what is wrong, right? And in this mind of a three-year-old, everything is very, very black and white, right? It's either proper or improper. Either you're playing right or you're not. But I think as, as we grow up, as we see that everything is not proper, the world isn't black and white, that things get a little more messy. They get a little more gray, right? And that's kind of what we've been dealing with in this series. As we've talked about the Bible, how do, how do we reconcile this book of ancient history that we still hold on to as truth with our modern world? How do we hold up a book that claims objective truth in a world where that's kind of out the window? And so last week, Matt kind of introduced us talking about, is the Bible outdated with the answer that, no, it still has relevance today? And today we're going to be dealing with the important but difficult question, does the Bible have errors? It might claim truth, but is there errors within it? And even if it does claim truth, if there is errors within it, it really doesn't matter, right? Because it's untrue. 
A simple Google search of this question will give you a litany of pages answering the question to various degrees. On the first page of Google, at least my Google search results, was this. A thousand clear contradictions and errors in the Bible. This is 10-point font, 26 pages front and back of a thousand clear contradictions and errors in the Bible. And this is just one of many pages, web pages, books, lists, scholarly articles that all claim that, yes, the Bible does have errors. And yet, if you go to our website today, right now, if you look at church history, if you look at the confessions of churches and denominations and Christians from right this moment back through the decades, they disagree with that. On our website right now, it says this, that we believe that the Bible is the word of God, fully inspired and without error in original manuscripts written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and that it has supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct. So what do we do? Is the Bible true? Is it the supreme authority without error? Or is it littered with contradictions and errors and a product of a time long past, a book of ancient history where people were writing with limited knowledge that we've probably moved past? It's good to study its history, but the foundation of our lives? And if it's not that, then what are we doing here? <laughs> this book is the foundation of our faith. What we base everything on, our belief system, why we have church, why we worship, why we praise. And so if the Bible is untrue, littered with contradictions and errors, then we might as well pack it in, head on home, and do the best we can, right? Certainly a lot of people, even people that we've known, have come to that decision. So today I want to wrestle with this question, because it's not just theology, it's not just something to think about. I think this is truly a foundational question of our belief and life. But don't worry. I don't think we have to pack it in. I don't think we have to kill church. I don't think we have to give up our faith because there are really, really great reasons and evidence for believing that the Bible not only is true, but is truth. And I want to prove, I want to show today from various sources, from the Bible itself, from history, that this is true. If we can trust in the perfect God, then we can trust that his word is perfect. If we can put our trust in the perfect God, then we can trust that his word is perfect. So if you're following along with us in our notes, you can follow along in the YouVersion Bible app. All the verses will be up on the screen. We've got a lot to go through today because there's so much good stuff I want to share with you. But the first thing is this. Is God perfect? Is God perfect? I think if you open just about any part of the Bible <laughs> that talks about God, it is evident that there is a significant difference between God and us. Just some examples. It's very clear that humans are selfish. All the way from the Garden of Eden, when they wanted that knowledge for themselves, to the things that we experience on an everyday basis, people cutting in traffic, our kids wanting that extra snack, whatever it is, humans are selfish, right? And yet the God of the Bible is giving, loving, selfless. We're also natural, right? 
We're made of atoms, and we're made of the earth. We decay. We have a beginning and an end. We're limited. We can only be at one place at once. Much as we try to do as many things as we can, we can only do so much. We get tired. And yet, the God of the Bible is supernatural, able to do things of miraculous power. He can be everywhere at once. He's not limited in power or scope. He has strength that is beyond compare. And yes, above all else, God is perfect. We see it in his response to Adam and Eve's disobedience in the garden. He cannot be around them because they have sinned. They have messed up. He is perfect. We see it in his giving of the law, showing how to live, showing that his law, his character, is the basis of how we are to live. We see it in the way that the Psalms and the prophets point back to God. We see it in the words of Jesus in his life. We see it in the way the the epistles, the New Testament, writes about the character of God. We see it in Revelation in the final judgment. And there's verses that say so in the Bible. Look at Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. It says, he is the rock, talking about God. His works are perfect and all of his ways are just. Not just some of them, all of them. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. In order to be perfect, that means you must do no wrong. Not just a little bit of wrong, not just one wrong. No, no wrong. And it's not just that God is perfect in who he is, in his character, but because his character is perfect, his very being, who he is, is perfection, everything that he does, whether in word, in thought, in deed, actions, are perfect too. Just think about it. Can a perfect being do something that's imperfect? No, because then they wouldn't be perfect, right? If you're doing something that's imperfect, you're no longer perfect. And so that is the basis that if we can trust that God is perfect, then we can trust that his word is perfect too because it flows out of who he is. In fact, the Bible says that. In, In Psalms 18, verse 30, it says this. It says, as for God, his way is perfect. We just saw that, right? The Lord's word is flawless, and he shields all that take refuge in him. If God truly is perfect, then his word flowing out of him, flowing out of his character, must be perfect too. If God spoke an imperfect word, he wouldn't be perfect anymore. And so we see that if we trust that God is perfect, the God of the universe, the God that created everything from his very word, then his word must be perfect too. The Bible tells us over and over and over again that it is from God. That it tells an account of who God is, what he's like, how he interacts with the world, the grand narrative of history starting from the creation all the way through the end. If God is perfect, then his word must be perfect too. And yet I know some of you are sitting there and saying, Ann Sawyer's kind of been out of it for a while because I hate to break it to you, but God didn't write the Bible. (laughs) Hopefully you know that. Don't worry, I do. I do. And so we have to deal with that problem, right? But before we get there, I want to show you something. 
It's not just that God's word is perfect, without error. Because that's what perfect means, right? That it's without error. It's true. It's not false. It's not just that the Bible is true. The Bible is also truth. Because it's true that I'm wearing a blue shirt right now, right? But none of you are going to base your life on that truth. You're not going to be like, well, Sawyer wore a blue shirt today, so you know what? I was going to do this, but now I'm going to do this. No, none of you are going to do that. But the Bible not only claims that it's true, that it's without error, but also that it is truth itself. Because it flows from the very character of God. We know, we know this to be true because of human authors, right? The books that they write, their words reflect who they are as people. Uh, a Tom Clancy novel writing about war or, you know, the army stuff is going to look a lot different than a Stephanie Meyer Twilight novel, right? Because they flow from the character of who they are as people. A, a book by um, Stephen King is going to look a lot different than a book by Stephen Hawking's, right? Stephen Hawking. Because they're different people. They write about different things. It flows from who they are as people. If you picked up on Nicholas Sparks' rom-com book, right, it's going to look a little bit different than the latest Game of Thrones George Martin novel. Because they're very different people, right? It flows from the character of who they are. I love the way Virginia Woolf, an author herself, writes it. She says, every secret of a writer's soul, every experience of his life, every quality of his mind is written large in his works. And this book, the Bible, the very words of God are a reflection of who God is. If God is good, then God's word is good. If God is focused on justice, then the Bible is focused on justice. If God is perfect, then God's word is perfect. God is true, and the Bible is true. And if God is the very creator of the universe, the source of existence itself, right? Then God also is the source of truth, and God's word is truth. In fact, Jesus in one of his own prayers says this. He's praying over his disciples before he heads to his crucifixion, and praying over them, he says this. Sanctify them by the truth. Look at this. Your word is truth. It's not just that the Bible is true or without error. It's that it is truth itself. It is the foundation of our beliefs, where we should root our life. So yes, there is truth because it flows from the God of truth. But once again, we run into that problem, right? If God didn't just sit up in heaven at a big desk or sat down at a computer, whatever computer he used, or maybe had it narrated and somebody wrote it down word for word, if that didn't happen, if the words of God don't flow directly from God, then we have a problem. Yes, we can trust that a perfect God leads to a perfect word of God, but what happens when that flows through human authors? Because as we started with, we... Humans are far from perfect. The authors of the Bible were far from perfect. In fact, the Bible records the many mistakes, sins, and errors that they fall into, just like us. And yet, it was their hands and their minds that wrote down these words. So what do we do? 
Do we have to throw away the Bible, pack it in? It's like, well, it'd be great if God wrote the Bible if it came just from him, but these humans, man, they get in the way. Don't worry, there's a good way to explain that too. Let's look at 2 Timothy verse three, or excuse me, chapter three, verse 16. Probably a verse that you're familiar with if you study the Bible. It says that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So wait, I, I thought we just said that human hands and, and human minds wrote the Bible. They did. But that's not all that was taking place. I want to get a little nerdy for a second because it's actually really important. I want you all to look at this Greek word. So the Bible, the New Testament, was primarily written in Greek. And the word that is written in the original copies that we have is this word. And let's all read it together on the count of three. Ready? One. No, I'm just kidding. No. It's okay. No, it, the pronunciation is up there. It's theopnostos. Theopnostos. And that is the Greek words God, theo, and breathe together. They're just sandwiched together in one word. So it's really good translation in the NIV version. All scripture is God breathed. So what does that mean? If we just said that human hands and human minds came up with the Bible, there was something else going on. And I love this. This is so cool. Because in addition to the word breathed, that, that Greek word also means spirit. It's the same word. It's used in both ways. And so I think... I think what Paul is trying to do in writing to Timothy and saying, hey, Scripture matters. Teach it. You're going to be a pastor. Teach God's Word. Because it doesn't just come from human hands. It actually comes from God. Think about when you speak, right? You cannot breathe. Excuse me. You cannot speak without breathing. It naturally happens. I'm kind of a heavy breather, so you probably have heard me breathe into this microphone here today. But it's not just that the breath of God in his words is happening. Those words are being spirited as the people are writing them. It mentioned in, in, in our statement of faith that they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. That these words, though from human hands, though flowing through human minds, were actually the very words of God as the Holy Spirit worked in and through them to make sure that the words written down were the exact words that God wanted. They were God-breathed. The Holy Spirit was working in and through them as they wrote so that the words that God wanted were the words that are on the page. So they are true, and they are truth. It's, it's kind of similar. Think about the idea of prophecy, that these are the messengers of God. The words of God are given to them, and then they speak them. In fact, Peter, in, in one of his letters, picks up on this idea. In 1 Peter 1, verse 20 and 21, it says this. So above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. It's not like they were like, okay, this is how it's going to be. I'm going to write it down, and then we're good to go. No, it came from something else. Verse 21 tells us, it says this, For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. Never. But prophets, through, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. As these people were writing, as these people were thinking, writing their letters, writing their books of history, writing their poetry, writing their prophecy, whatever it was, yes, they were the ones writing and thinking, but it wasn't up to them. 
The Holy Spirit was working in them, inspiring them, so that the words of God, the truth of God, was on the page. And you might be saying, well, that's kind of a roundabout way of doing things. I I kind of struggle to believe that. But if you believe that this book is true, if you believe that God really is who he says he is, God has done much stranger things. God makes a donkey talk at one point because people won't listen. God flooded the entire earth. God brought fire down from heaven. God stopped the sun in the sky so the Israelites could win a battle. God parted the Red Sea. God spoke through different peoples of backgrounds, people that you would never expect. And maybe most impressively, God came down as a person. Something that we can't really understand, that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. Not part of one, part of the other. No, completely both. And you know what? If the perfect God can do all of those things, you know what would probably be pretty easy for him? To inspire people as they're writing. To make sure that the words that they were writing were what God wanted. To make sure that even though they make mistakes, even though they mess up, even though they're people like you and like me, that the words are not only true, but they're God's truth. Maybe it'd be easier if we think about it this way. Think about what it takes to make wine. So this master winemaker, right, has a garden, excuse me, a vineyard full of grapes. And just like that, God has done many great things in the world. His fruit, his actions are innumerable. God has a vineyard of actions and a story, a grand narrative of how he's been creating and loving and interacting in the world. So God not only has acted in the world, but you know what God does? Is he takes all of his actions, all the things that he's done, all the things that he's revealed about himself, and he pushes it down. He distills it in a way that we can understand it. God uses human language to tell him, tell us about him. And so God is the one. Yes, the words are God's. The actions are God's. He distills it down in a way that we can understand. But do you know what happens at the last thing before you complete a bottle of wine? You put it in an aging vessel. Maybe it's a barrel like on the next slide. Maybe it's a stainless steel container. They used to do it in big clay pots. There's many different vessels that you can do it in. And no matter which one you do, stainless steel doesn't give anything. Clay is going to make it more earthy. The barrel is going to maybe give it wood tones, depending upon where that tree was from or what happened, maybe what that barrel was used for previously. And despite the most of the flavor of wine being the soil, the grapes, the worker of the winemaker to make that great wine, there's just a little bit of extra flavor from whatever aging vessel you put it in. And I think the same is true of the inspiration of the Bible. God's words are in the Bible. God's actions and revelation of himself are what we have. God is the one that distilled it down so we can understand, distilled it into human language. The words are God's. But then right there at the last moment, they were aged a little bit. They were given a little bit of flavor by the experiences of the human authors, their perspectives, who they knew God to be, what they've been through, the good, the bad, and the ugly I love that God did it that way because it shows a couple things, right? God uses us to do awesome things. The Holy Spirit can do amazing things through even broken people like us. 
And you know what else it shows? That the things that we've been through, the unique situations that we've been put in, our unique experience of God, the good and the bad of the ugly of our life, that all matters. Because as we talk about God, it gives us a unique flavor to who God is. These are people from kings to the lowly, fishermen, people of different experiences, leaders, people of history, people from long ago, people from relatively close by. 2,000 years isn't that much time in the grand scheme of reality. God chose to use all those different people to give each one of the books of the Bible a unique flavor, a unique look at who God is. I love that God did it that way. It's so cool. Okay. So if God is perfect, we can trust in his word. And even though it was distilled down, inspired through human authors, through the power of the Holy Spirit, it is still true. It is still God's truth. So how then do people on the internet and scholars write 10,000 clear contradictions and errors in the Bible? If all that we said today is true then how do we still end up with this? I think there's a lot of different categories of why this happens. And no, we're not going to sit down and go through every 1,000 of these. Don't worry. But I think there's different categories of things that seem like mistakes, seem like contradictions, seem like errors. But as we study, as we live more in tune with the Holy Spirit, we're going to see that God's word is still true and it is still error-free. So first category is this. The Bible, like any other book, is written in different ways. I think we often forget that, yes, because the Bible is true, because it is truth, because it is important, that we have to, like, put our mind on the side and read it differently from any other books. That it does, like, a disservice to read the Bible like a book. It doesn't. God chose to use our word, our language, story, metaphor, hyperbole, plot, characters, If you read through the Bible, it is the greatest story ever written. And you know what? Even better than that, it's true. But to forget that the Bible is a book, to read all books of the Bible the same, is a disservice to the Bible. We don't read poetry like we do books of history. We don't read prophecy like we do when we're reading somebody's important personal experience. And the Bible is filled with all of those. So read the Bible like a book. Read it like God intended. Perhaps you've heard that people are saying that the Bible supports the idea of a flat earth. Maybe you've heard that before. And and they can pull, there's evidence in the Bible that seems to present that. Look at Revelation 7, verse 1. It says, And after all these things, I saw four corners, excuse me, four angels standing on the four corners of the earth. Uh oh, corners. Holding to the four winds of the earth. Well, we're advanced. It's 2022. We've seen the earth from space. We know it's not flat. It's not a square. It has, it's a globe. It's a sphere. Well, the Bible was just written by idiots. They didn't know. No. It's using a metaphor. Think about it. We still use this. When I was watching the Olympics, the announcer said, and there are Olympians gathered from the four corners of the earth. No, he wasn't saying that the earth is flat. He's saying that they're from everywhere, right? The Bible's saying the same thing. So we got to read the Bible like a book we got to understand when it's using a metaphor, when it's using hyperbole. We have to use the minds that God has given us. That's why we don't just go out and read the Bible by ourselves. 
We have the church. We gather together. We discuss it. We talk about it. As we talked about last week, the Holy Spirit is alive and active when we read the Bible, revealing things to us. We got to read the Bible like a book. A lot of supposed contradictions and errors are just because we got to interpret the Bible for what it is. Perhaps you're thinking about differing perspectives, right? Even in the Gospels, there seems where one author will say, well, Jesus did this, and then the next author will say, well, actually, he did this, right? Think about this. If I were to ask four of us in this room to write an account of what happened today, right here at church. So, like, I'll write one. Bob, you can write one, okay? And then we'll have Jason from the sound booth write one. And then we'll have one of our preschool teachers preschool um, kids teachers right one right so we're all here we're all present we're all having an experience do you think our accounts would be exactly the same when we wrote them down no my perspective on this stage looking at all of you saying hi to those people online is much different than bob coming to church driving the golf cart coming in listening to the service right it's much different than jason who's serving back there working running his team maybe more focused on the technical aspects of the service. And certainly it's much different than the experience of our preschool teacher back there helping our kids follow Jesus. The same is true of the Bible. These authors, they wrote on their own experience, they gathered eyewitness sources, and they write from that perspective. Think about it. They're not going to end up with exactly the same thing. Also, Jesus probably delivered a couple parables in different spots. He probably healed multiple people very similar ways. Our God can do amazing things. Just because there's differing perspectives doesn't mean that the Bible is untrue. I think it actually shows the opposite. Think about it. Four different people with four different experiences write about their experience of Jesus, the eyewitnesses that they got, their own experiences, and they come up with the same conclusion. Jesus is the Son of God through salvation comes. Not even that. Paul, in all of his letters, Peter in his letters, James, Jude, Revelation written by John, the prophecies from the, New Test- the Old Testament that point to Jesus, they all come to that same conclusion. They're surrounded, as it says in Hebrews, by a cloud of witnesses. You know what a lot, a lot of witnesses means? It's probably true. If a lot of people see and experience the same thing and come to the same conclusion, that probably means it's true. I love the way that Mark L. Strauss, in his book, Four Perspectives, or Four Four Portraits, One Gospel, puts it. In his introduction, he says this, that the Gospels exhibit both unity and diversity, bearing witness to the same Jesus, unity, but viewing viewing him from unique perspectives, that diversity piece. The four unique Gospels testify to the one Gospel, that the good news of salvation available through Jesus, the Messiah. Differing perspectives don't mean we need to pack the Bible and throw it away and say, hey, there's error and mistakes. No, it points to the truth that Jesus really is who he says he is, that the Bible is truth. And lastly, I think maybe most importantly, how they can get to 1,000 or even 40,000, or there was a list that had 400,000. I don't know how somebody took the time. 400,000 errors and differences in the Bible. Because I hate to spoil it to you, because at the top we said that the Bible is without error in its original manuscripts. 
How many manus- original manuscripts do you think we have? Zero. Not one. We do not have any original manuscripts of the Bible. We don't have the original letter that John wrote. We don't have the original copy of Genesis. We don't have any of them. And yet, we can still believe that God really is who he says he is and that the human authors were inspired. Because the amount of manuscripts, the amount of copies of copies of copies that we have is crazy. And not only that, those copies are so close to one another. Yes, hear this, there are differences. We're going to talk about them in a second. But we're going to see that they actually point us back to God. I want you to look at this graph. This is the amount of manuscripts that we have for the New Testament. You might see some bottom things on the bottom there that you recognize. Um, Pliny the Elder, Pliny the Younger, Plato. Maybe in school you had to read the Iliad or the Odyssey written by Homer. In any discussion of that, was there questions of the validity and the correctness of those documents? No. They were presented, hey, Homer wrote this. We got it. We got to study it and read it. You got to write a book report on it. Sorry. The Iliad is the next closest beyond the New Testament at 1,900 manuscripts. The New Testament in all languages has almost 24,000 manuscripts. The Bible as an ancient text is the most well-copied, well-attested, well-supported book ever, period. Yes, those copies have a little bit of difference in them. We're gonna talk about them in a second. But if God could inspire the authors of the Bible so that their word is perfect, don't you think maybe God was in the copying of his word? Make sure that we have this word today. There's two significant differences in the Bible. If you wanna go to the next slide. You might have noticed as you read through the gospel in Mark 16, 9 through 20, and in John 7, 53 through 8, 11, there's a little footnote. And it's actually not even a footnote. It's in the text. It's in your Bible right now. And what it says is in the earliest manuscripts or in some manuscripts, those sections aren't in there. You wanna know what's cool? The Bible doesn't hide that in some manuscripts, those aren't there. Those are the two biggest variants in the entire copies, all those copies. And the Bible says, hey, they're not in the earliest manuscripts. They're in a lot of them. We're pretty sure Jesus did this. But let's just say for sake of argument, let's throw those out. We still have the rest of the Bible. God's word is still true. God is still who he says he is. You can still show that Jesus was the son of God, that salvation comes through Jesus alone who the Holy Spirit is, how we're supposed to live without those passages. And you know what? The rest of the variances, the differences, are even less significant. Daniel Wallace is a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, and he has founded the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. He has dedicated his life to looking at those manuscripts and seeing if the words that we have are correct And he's written and he's come to this conclusion that over 70% of them are spelling errors. 70%. One of those scribes put an iota where they should have put an epsilon, whatever it was. 70%. Even more of them are just syntax errors. They maybe got the wrong preposition or something. 
um, a lot of them are just synonyms. They said Jesus when they could have said Christ. They said the Lord of hosts instead of just, just Lord, right? He has studied and given his life and has a whole team of people around him, and he has found that only 1% of the differences in the manuscript actually matter, are significant and meaningful. Here's an example. Many of us have heard about the number of the beast in Revelation, right? 666. A lot of manuscripts actually put 616. That's a significant difference, right? Does it really matter? No. I truly believe that the number of the beast is metaphorical anyway. And does it matter if it's 666 or 616? No. It's saying, hey, look out and follow God because the end times are going to be hard. That's what matters. And there's so many other examples about that. He has said, hey, there is some differences. You might be able to get to 1,000. You might be able to get to a lot of differences if you look, if you count each manuscript as a difference. But the fundamentals of our faith, the things that we're going to give our life on, what is true and what is truth that flows from the character of God, that is unchanging and without error. In his book, you might have heard of Bart Ehrman before. And he has one of the most popular books writing on these differences in the textual variants. It's called Misquoting Jesus with this evocative subtitle, The Story Behind Who Changed the Bible and Why. It's a good subtitle. You want to read that, right? And he spends that entire book looking at these textual variants, looking how they've been changed and adjusted. And he comes to the conclusion, yes, the Bible is significant as a piece of history, but don't base your life on it. And yet, if you look at the appendix, if you look at his discussion with a prominent evangelical scholar, he says this, that essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. What that's saying in a lot of fancy terms is that, yes, there's differences. Yes, there's variants. Do they matter for the essential beliefs of who God is, who Jesus is, what salvation is, and how we should live our lives? No. The Bible is true, and it is God's truth. And if that's the case, if everything that we've said here today is true, if we can trust in the perfect God, and we can trust that his word is perfect, why aren't we opening the Bible more? Why do I find it so hard to read the Bible? If it reveals the best way to live, the very DNA of how God has designed us, then why are we looking anywhere else? As Peter says to Jesus, surely you have the words of eternal life. Where else should we go? You're the Holy One of God. And you know what else? If the Bible is true and it is truth, then it says that we have a problem, that we mess up, that we fail even our own standards. Bible not may be perfect, but we're certainly not. We have a problem called sin, and that's falling short of the perfection of God. But do you know what else the Bible says? That God didn't leave us in that. The Bible reveals to us Jesus, who came down, born as a baby in a manger, who lived the perfect life that we can't, who showed us how to live, how to love, how to reach out to those less fortunate and forgotten gave us the blueprint of what it means to be human but even more than that despite deserving perfection with God he gave it up 
and he hung on a cross for you and for me, dying death in our place, receiving upon himself the consequences of our problem of sin. And he raised three days later, according to what the scriptures say, conquering sin, death, and the devil and making a way for us to be renewed in relationship with God, to be made perfect again, to live the life that we can't, to love the way that God has loved us, to seek out to those that are less fortunate, to seek the one. Because if the Bible is true, friends, then that means there's some people who have given their lives to the wrong thing. People that you know, people that I know, people that we care about deeply. Perhaps even as I say that, you have somebody on your mind right now. Maybe it's the person that you're seeking. And the reason that we're here right now, if you are a follower of Jesus, is to keep on seeking, to keep on believing, to keep on trusting God's word, and to encourage others to do the same through the power of the same spirit that inspired the authors. Because if you are a follower of Jesus, you have the very spirit of God inside of you. The spirit who can make perfect words out of imperfect people. And if that's true, we got some work to do. We got some people to love. We got a book to base our lives on. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time together. God, I love this church. Thank you for sending me here. God, thank you for drawing us to yourself, to revealing who you are in a way that we could understand. God, thank you for giving us really good reasons to believe in you. Thank you for the gift of faith. Thank you for Jesus. God, for those of us gathered in this room, for those watching online, that you would continue to use our doubts, to use our questions, to push us into you, to reveal more of yourself as we seek you. God, even more than that, would we be sent out to seek others, that we would partner with you to reveal the truth that has been revealed to us. God, if maybe for the first time, somebody, you've been working on them, you've been drawing to yourself and it's clicked, they understand who you are and they and want to learn more and, and they're ready to accept that free gift of salvation that you offer. And if that's you this morning, I, I want to lead you in a short prayer. Not that these words are magical, but they declare the truth of God. And so as you say this for the first time, that we would all read this together as a reminder and encouragement to those who are saying it for the first time. Let's pray. Dear God, I'm a sinner. I need a savior. Save me. Forgive me. In faith I declare, Jesus is Lord. Fill me with your spirit and help me to follow you and trust in your word. And with all eyes closed and heads bowed, if you prayed that prayer for the first time, then the truth has set you free. You are a child of God. You are a new creation. And the angels of heaven are rejoicing. And we want to rejoice with you. And so on the count of three, I want you to raise your hand high in the air that we can celebrate with you and partner with you on this journey of faith. One, two, three. And God, if there is somebody watching online, that they would go to arisedenver.com slash follow, and we would want to celebrate with them as well. 
And God, for the rest of us, that we wouldn't leave these words in this room or on this stream, God, but we would be sent and equipped by your spirit to believe your word, to study it, to trust it, and to do what it says. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.